Well, good morning, Capital Press family. My name is Bill. I'm one of the pastors here. And let me add my welcome this morning, whether you're online, whether you're at our rest in site, whether you are here in this room in the sanctuary. If you would, would you pray with me as we come to God's word? Father, we come to this passage. We come and we pray that you would meet us in our need. Lord, we ask that you would show us Christ in a way that would make us changed and different people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an old TV commercial with which some of you may be familiar for V8. Now, if you've never had a V8, it's sort of like drinking a vegetable smoothie mixed with tomato juice. And given that it's rather healthy for you, and given the way I just described it, as you can imagine, many people didn't particularly want to drink a V8. And so the producers, the makers of V8, did what everybody does in that circumstance. They turned to advertising. And the advertising campaign, in all its various forms, was really about missed opportunities. The person would have breakfast, they would drink themselves some juice, and then after realizing that they could have had something, the implication is that was both better for them and tasted better, they'd suddenly go, oh, I could have had a V8. Now, depending on your perspective, I'd say one of those two implications was probably true. The other probably depends on your taste buds. But the whole point was the missed chance. I could have had something that would have been better. And I turned it down for this. For a more serious example, I was talking with a friend of mine some years back who had just returned from doing international missions in Haiti. And he and I were talking about the experience, how it had gone, and one of the many things we discussed was the witch doctors in Haiti who had put voodoo curses on people, and they would work. People really would die when the witch doctor told them they were going to die, except the missionaries who'd been hexed more times than they could count and were just fine. And as we talked about this, he was relating to me his interactions and the team's interactions with the local witch doctor, which were surprisingly non-adversarial. The guy was a really nice guy. They talked to him a lot. They got to know him. And I asked, I said, well, why does he do it? And the answer was fascinating. He said, oh, I know I'm on the side of the devil, and I know in the end we lose and it's going to get me judged. But he said, but I just don't really, I won't worry or care about that much because he wanted power then. Think about that. He was willing to do something he knew put eternity in jeopardy, but it didn't matter because he wasn't willing to give up what he had, the power and the control right at that moment. And to be much more broad, that's even somewhat the dynamic, you know, of an addiction. We make choices, but after a while, we can't not make those choices. And in the moment of deciding, even though we know this thing's destroying us, we aren't willing to give up the immediate thing for what's really good for us. And of course, remember, the Bible says sin is addictive. And we so often, when Jesus starts to step into our lives, start to see the things that we fear we might lose 
I mean, too often I have things that, to be honest, I love more than Jesus, and I'm not really willing to let them go. And our passage in Mark 5 here steps into exactly that dynamic and challenges us. It forces on us a question. And and here's the thesis. Here's the point this morning. Jesus comes to free us, but we get scared of what that might mean and instead just want him to go away. That Jesus comes to free us, but we get scared of what that might mean. We just want him to go away. Leave us alone. And we'll look at that under just those two points, that he comes to free us, that in our fear we want him to go away, trying to understand what this text might mean for you and me. Um, A quick bit of context just before we jump in. We are preaching through this book called the Gospel of Mark, probably the earliest of the four Gospels in the New Testament written. And up until Christmas season, we're going to be getting just to chapter 8 and the entire first half of the book reaches the point in chapter 8 when Jesus will look at his disciples and say, but you, who do you say I am? Now, we're in a little section earlier that's heading that way. It starts in about verse 35 of chapter 4 and then covers chapter 5. And in this section, Mark is taking four episodes, four times Jesus deals with people, and he's building them into sort of an increasing revelation of who Jesus is. So if you think back to last week's passage, it was Jesus calming the storm. And what was the end of it? The disciples say and wonder, who is this man? Who is this one who can just stop a storm? The wind and the waves obey him. This man who has power over nature. Well, today's passage, we now see that Jesus doesn't just have power over nature. He has power over the supernatural, the spiritual world. And then next week, we'll come to the rest of chapter 5, seeing that he doesn't just have power over nature. He doesn't just have power over the supernatural. He has power even over sickness, even climactically over death itself. As we step into the second of these four sort of escalating stories, Mark steps us in 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 verse 2 with his favorite word, the word immediately. And immediately... We come to the first point. It's really in verses 1 to 13 that Jesus wants to free us. Jesus comes and he comes to challenge evil. Now, that gets us right to the elephant in the room, demons. You think, really, demons? Well, yes, really. And we talked about this actually earlier in our sermon series in chapter 1. So we won't re-say everything from then. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you, go back and listen to the sermon from the end of chapter 1. But the Bible's clear that demons are real and that they have power. And to believe that's not anti-intellectual, it's not sort of superstitious, at least if you're here as a Christian this morning, You believe that there are unseen forces that work for good in our world. Well, if you believe that, wouldn't it be consistent to believe that there are unseen forces that would work for evil in our world? And when we sort of poo-poo demons or this type of thing, we're often engaged in a bit of chronological snobbery. We look back at the ancients who wrote the Bible under God's spirit, and we think, well, that was just a superstitious time. Well, do you realize that doesn't even line up with what we see in Mark's book? In the book of Mark, sometimes it just says this person was sick. Other times it says, oh, this person had a demon. So 
They knew how to recognize sometimes you were just sick because you were sick. But they also saw that there was an unseen world that was so real that it could have impacts even on this world that we see. C.S. Lewis said it fairly famously and fairly well in his preface to his little book, The Screwtape Letters. This is what Lewis writes. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. I might add to all of that, we're in danger of a bit of a geographical snobbery if we just write off the question of demons. There are many places in this world you can go and you'll see many things that leave, frankly, no doubt that demons are alive and well. And the fact that we are largely spared of it in our cultural context ought not mean we write off all our brothers and sisters throughout the rest of the world. And this spirit in this man works in him to harm him. There is an enemy out there who wants our harm, even our destruction. Verse 2 says it has driven him away from society. He lives out among the tombs. Verse 5 says it has driven him to self-hatred and self-harm. He's crying out and shrieking and cutting himself. This man is alienated from his world, and he's fractured in himself. There's an enemy who wants his destruction. And, and I, one more thing we have to say quite clearly right now, if you are cutting yourself, that doesn't mean you have a demon. Um, we've just said there was sickness and there were demons. You know, a demon possession could show up in their world as being sick, but not every sickness was due to a demon. Well, likewise, this demon was causing this man to cut himself with stones, but that doesn't mean everyone who cuts themselves has a demon. If you are a Christian, you cannot be possessed by a demon. Demons are real. Demons have power. They can bluster. They can intimidate, but they cannot possess the heart of a believer because if a demon takes a swipe at you, What the demon finds is the Holy Spirit there guarding the sanctuary that's your heart. The Holy Spirit is the bouncer. It's the security. He's standing there with a big, fat, no vacancy sign. Says, get out of here. This person belongs to Jesus. Demons can bluster. They have real power, but they cannot control. They cannot possess a Christian. And so if you are cutting... Or if you're engaged in any of a number of other forms of self-harm, acting out sexually, addictions, viewing pornography, any number of these things, it's not that there's a demon in you. Now, it does say that something is really terribly wrong. That something's really as it ought not be. Not wrong with you, but something is wrong in the world. Something inside you is crying out to be healed. And the message of this passage and the message of the gospel is, there is freedom, you can be. So tell someone. If you don't know who to tell, tell us at the church. Just email care at capitalpres.org and we will walk beside you because there is real healing and there is real freedom. 
And I recognize if you're in that dark place right now, you hear me say that, and you think, I can't even believe that. I might want to believe that, but I I don't even possibly believe that could be possible. Well, I get that. But also recognize that this man in this passage could never have imagined that he would be healed. At the end of the day, he is. He is because Jesus comes, and look how gently he comes. He doesn't come to this man and say, why can't you get your act together? Why can't you stop doing this? It's time. He doesn't pile guilt on the man. What does he do? He gently just comes and he says to him, what's your name? If you're struggling with these questions of self-harm, Jesus steps in and simply says, who are you? Because he has come to break the power of sin and death and shame and to bring freedom and healing. Notice this man who could not be bound, could not be restrained. The moment Jesus shows up, what does he do? He comes and he throws himself down in front of Jesus. And verse 8 tells us why. Because Jesus was already saying to the demon, come out of him. Not waiting for when this man would come and bow down, but Jesus was already working for his healing before this man even bowed down. Jesus steps in to give freedom. And two more points very quickly before we head on with this. First, or I guess A, if you're keeping an outline, for all of us and for each of us. For all of us, look at the geography of this passage. Verse one, where is Jesus? They have just gotten to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They have gone, verse 20 tells you, near what's called the Decapolis. This is a region of Greek-speaking, culturally different, racially different people. In other words, Jesus has gone on a mission trip. Jesus has gone across the sea. Back in verse 34 of chapter 4, he said, we must go to the other side. Jesus is not here just for those pious Jews down in Judea. He has come for everyone. And he's come for each one. Do you notice that Jesus only has any kind of long conversation with one person in this entire passage? Jesus comes here just for this man. He comes, he heals this man, he talks to him, they beg him to go away, he gets back in the boat and he leaves. Jesus takes this entire trip for this one person. To Jesus, he's worth it. He's worth crossing the sea. He's worth almost dying in a storm. He's worth stilling the storm just so this one person, the least of these, the outcast of their society, can come to be saved. It's for all of us and for each of us. And second, B, um, if you're keeping your outline, B, the problem's out there and in here. The problem's out there and in here. Notice something incredibly curious about the way this unfolds. Jesus says, what's your name? And then the demon speaks, says, we are legion. And the text tells you why, for we are many. And, and that's true. I mean, many of us know the word legion was a large collection of Roman soldiers. But that doesn't fully explain it. The gospels were written in Greek. There's a perfectly good Greek word for many. But here, the Latin word gets used. Why is that? It's more than just there are a lot. What's going on here is this. If you were a Jew 
as far as you were concerned, what was the problem in the world? The problem was all those Roman soldiers who were occupying Judea and enslaving you. The problem here was from the outside. It was all of that problem that was destroying me, pushing in on me. But by Mark pointing out this demon names itself Legion, Mark is saying, don't you realize the problem's not just the enslavement that comes from outside us. The problem's right in here. Mark's drawing this profound analogy that we're enslaved by things outside us in our world, but we're also enslaved by things in our own hearts. The problem is outside and in. And before we get to this curious incident of the pigs, notice the one thing Jesus is not willing to do in this passage. He's not willing for this man to stay enslaved to these demons. The pigs is odd. We're going to have to try to unpack this for a second. But notice before we talk about that, Jesus is not willing for this to stay the same. He has come to defeat evil. And that brings us immediately, you might say, to the second point that when we really face that, we start to get scared. And we kind of want Jesus to just go away and leave us alone. We really see that in verses 14 to 20. Um, the pigs now, this is, this is just, if you read the Gospels, this incident is strange because there are lots of times where Jesus cats out a demon. There are lots of times demons will fall face down and declare, I know who you are. By the way, don't miss the fact that that means our faith has to be more than intellectual. The demons have good theology. They know who Jesus is. They just don't follow him. But in this case, you have this funny dialogue. The demon says, well, can I have a consolation prize? Can I have the pigs? And Jesus says, yes. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? He does it let me suggest, because it makes the choice clear. We'll start. Verses 10 and 12, it says the demons come to Jesus and they beg him, let us go into these pigs instead. Don't send us away from the area. And Jesus grants it. And what this man had endured for years, if not decades, 2,000 pigs can't endure for a split second, even split 2,000 ways. They rush down and drown themselves. They beg Jesus, don't change things. Don't make us leave here. Well, notice the just unbelievable parallel then in verse 17. The townspeople come to Jesus, and what does it say they do? Same word, they beg Jesus. They beg Jesus. The demons beg Jesus not to send them away. The townspeople beg Jesus that he would go away. Why? Well, that's pretty obvious from the passage. They just lost a lot of money. Um, 2,000 pigs... The average pig farmer would have a herd of, say, 300 or so. So Jesus just wiped out seven small businesses. <clears throat> um, a pig was five days' wages. Um, that means this herd is 10,000 days' wages or 27 years of work. Put it in modern terms, you're talking somewhere between a million and two million dollars at least that have just been wiped out in this incident. Beyond even that, you know who those pigs would have fed? among many people, particularly those Roman legions that were occupying the country. So now you've got disgruntled occupying soldiers. So as Jesus does this, it threatens not just their economic world, but even their social and political situation. And faced with the instability that would come if Jesus starts changing this man inside out, 
They choose economic success over Jesus. They beg him to go away. So do you see the parallel? It's a little more subtle, but they're fundamentally doing the same thing the demons did. The demons say, we want things to stay the same, so don't make us leave. The townspeople say, we want things to stay the same, so you please leave. But in either way, they're picking their current situation over Jesus. And that, of course, leads to the real point, which is we do the same thing. That when it really comes down to it, faced with the idea that Jesus would transform our lives and our world, we fall into the same temptation. When, when we're addicted, we may know this thing's destroying us, but at the moment of choice, we aren't willing to give up what we have now for the sake of what Jesus offers us. And of course, sin is analogously the same way. At the moment of choice, we'd rather have our reputation. We'd rather have our security. We'd rather have our control. We'd rather have our ability to lash out or whatever it is more than we'd like Jesus to change us. These people want their economic security more than Jesus. You could argue by the end of the Gospel of Mark, that's what's happened more broadly. The Sadducees want their political power more than they want Jesus to upend their world. The Pharisees want their religious power and purity more than they want Jesus to upend their world. And again, we are tempted by the same thing. When it comes to it, if you're here as a non-Christian this morning, if you're online with us, let's be frank and honest, the gospel costs. The gospel involves a loss. We all give something up to follow Jesus. Now that thing differs person by person, and it differs degree person by person, but there's always a loss. The call of the gospel is not that life's going to be perfect and easy. The call of the gospel is that life in Christ is worth it. And if you do follow Christ here this morning, my concern is that we do the same thing, maybe not in coming to Jesus, but in walking with Jesus. That when we really think about the implications, both for us or for our world, if Jesus would actually step into our lives and change them and start transforming them inside out, and we think about what that could involve, we start to get skittish and scared, and we start to think, I'm not sure I'm so ready for you to change that, Jesus. In this passage, the town people thought, oh, it's great, he's healed, but not when it impacts their bank account. They, were, they probably would have been okay if they had heard that Jesus just healed this guy and nothing else changed. But the moment that they saw this, they said, he's not worth it. To Jesus, he was. And that really yields something. This healing, at the end of the day, yields something bigger. Let me just ask this question. If you look at this passage and I look at this passage, who am I in here? Am I the herdsmen who have fled in fear of what Jesus might do? Am I the townspeople who are begging Jesus to leave because of fear of what he might do next? Or there's one person whose life has been forever changed because he has met Jesus and he has been transformed. And notice that what has happened to this man by verse 20 is just a shadow of the defeat of evil that Jesus really intends to do. Because by the end of this book, the man and Jesus will have switched places. 
this man who had been cast out from society is now restored. Jesus will be cast out and alone. This man who had been naked will now be clothed, but Jesus will be stripped. This man who cut himself with stones will have healed wounds. Jesus will be bleeding from the stones embedded in the Roman whips. This man who had lived among the tombs is restored to society, but Jesus will be in the tomb. Because Jesus will switch places with him so that it's not simply a demon who has been conquered, but it is the devil who has been conquered. It is sin that has been destroyed. Jesus came to destroy evil. And what that means is there is freedom. And notice there's one more person who begs Jesus in this passage, verse 18. It's the man. But he doesn't beg Jesus to get away from him. What does he beg? He says, Jesus, let me come with you. And what's fascinating is Jesus says, not yet. No. What does Jesus do? He says, go back. Jesus breaks this confusing messianic secret. So often he says, don't don't go tell anybody. This time he says, go tell everybody. Recognize, of course, if you know Jesus, you want to go with him. He ascended into heaven. Wouldn't it be better to be there? But he says to us the same thing he said to the man. He says, not yet. Go back and tell everyone what God has done for you. Sometimes Jesus sends people across the sea to get the gospel, sometimes he sends us right back to where we are to tell all the people that need to hear it. And my concern is that we go back home, but we tell nobody. Because we worry about the risk to our reputation or to our career prospects or to our bank accounts or to where we might go or to whether that person will still stay with us and date us or any number of other things. It's so easy to fear what Jesus might take away for the gospel to go to each and every one of us. The townspeople could have had Jesus and they picked something else instead. This man picked Jesus and nothing was ever the same. I pray we'll pick well. Let's pray together. God, we do ask, help us to pick well. Change us in our hearts. We, we really do believe, but we pray help our unbelief because we need you. We need you to free us. And then having freed us decisively, we need you to transform us. And we pray that we would be ready for that wherever the wild ride would lead. That with this man, we would see nothing ever the same again. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.